0: Good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. I was just thinking about it. I probably worried some of you all by darting out there to get tissues. And you probably probably wondering whether I was going to come back or not. Uh, I've discovered that sometimes I get up here and I don't have any Kleenex on me. And if, if for some reason my nose starts to run very awkward. But um, I am prepared. Uh, so tonight we're going to look at uh, First John. I'm starting a sermon series, I guess, on on First John. And tonight is the first installment. We'll look at First John chapter one. Um really appreciated the introduction and the uh opening songs. That first song we we sang we talked about sin and want we come confessing, thou canst save and thou canst heal and then the second verse of darkness can on as can be very appropriate lines for what we're looking at tonight in first john i wanted to just give you a glimpse of this book as a little bit of an overview of it before we dig into uh, scripture here this letter was probably written by the apostle john that the evidence is, he doesn't actually identify himself, but the evidence is very strong that the Apostle John wrote this letter. And you remember, he was once a young fisherman, brother of James, and kind of a nobody until Jesus came along and called him to follow him. And then his life just totally changed. You know, I don't know what aspirations he might have had as a fisherman, but I'm sure he never imagined being able to walk as a disciple of the Son of God see him die on the cross, and then be a witness about this man, uh, the Son of God, and write these letters that were read by millions, you know, over the next 2,000 years, and um, that just reminds me uh, how much, how how much meaning uh, God brings to our lives when we are followers of him, and how much direction and purpose being a follower of Jesus brings to our lives. This letter was probably written between AD 85 to 95. John was an old man. The other apostles had been mostly killed off by this time. It was kind of awkward. You remember at the end of of, um, the Gospel of John how Jesus was talking to Peter and said, if I want him, referring to John, to remain until I come, what's that to you? And that statement was turned out to be just a little awkward for John because he did remain for quite a while. And all and the other disciples were martyred and so on. But John kept getting older and older. And maybe he was, you know, if he was 20 when he was following Jesus, uh, he could have been 80 or older when he wrote this letter. This letter is not really addressed to anyone in particular, probably written to uh, the church at Ephesus, the first confirmed usage of the letter was in Ephesus. John was, uh, of course, he lived in Jerusalem in, in the days of the early church, but sometime between A.D. 50 and 70, he moved to Asia Minor, and probably because of persecution coming to Israel. And so he moved to Ephesus and lived or in the area of Ephesus, and we think this writing is probably to the Church of Ephesus, or churches. It may have been a circle letter, because he doesn't talk to anybody specifically, he doesn't use any names when he wrote this letter. Two things John is trying to do with this letter. One is um, to kind of reassure them and shore them up. The church is a bit tottery. Uh, there has been some false teaching sweeping through, and it's it's done some damage. That's the other thing he's trying to do is combat this false teaching. It it was an early form of Gnosticism, which I don't know a whole lot about, except that they believed all matter was evil. God couldn't have created the world because all matter is evil. It must have been some inferior God that actually created the world or some other being. And they would also believe that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. And you'll see some things John has has to say seem very along this line. You know, like he's attacking this heresy specifically, and they also believed that salvation. Of course, there's variation in their in their beliefs, but they would believe that salvation doesn't come from faith in Jesus, but from a spiritual enlightening and knowledge of of some kind. And uh, this teaching hit the church pretty hard. It sounds a little weird to us. But it, it did damage to this church, and, and John is trying to, to shore things up here a bit. So tonight's study, we're reading the first chapter of John. Now, probably read the, the first two verses of, of chapter 2 as well, just as they, they flow into this. I'll go ahead and read this now. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father, and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things, that our joy may be complete." And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's spend a minute on this introduction here. John's introduction to his letter. John's supposed to be a more straightforward writer than, say, Paul, but this introduction is not really easily dissected. There's a lot of witches in here. Uh, that witch, which witch, which witch, there's six witches in three verses. And the place to kind of anchor ourselves is at the end of verse. One which says concerning the word of life. He's talking about the word of life, and he's not just saying the word as a as a message or a, a stream of of uh, language. He's talking about something that was actually um, manifested in a form that could be touched, could be seen, could be handled, could be heard. It's the gospel. It's not the gospel just in words. It's the gospel embodied in Jesus Christ. Now, the rest of the introduction is saying this, saying that Jesus came from the Father. It's saying the gospel was manifested to us. He means the the 12 common men who walked with Jesus. Even though John never actually calls himself an apostle, doesn't use that title in his three letters. um, He's kind of reminding them here gently of his authority. He is an apostle. He He walked with Jesus. And his mission is to declare and proclaim and testify this message because it's a message that makes a difference. You'll notice it talks about some of the effects here in these verses. That when it's received, it, it brings fellowship, it brings joy, and it brings eternal life. It's the message of life. Now let's move on to the next verses and kind of get into the meat of things here. The next six verses. In these verses, there are three truths, I guess, that I want want us to take home tonight. The first one is is in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. John is... Is starting in the beginning here. He is laying the, the foundation of all foundations, really. And if you had to make a, if you had to describe God in a single statement, this would probably be the best one to pick that God is light. It talks about, it talks about several different aspects of God. One of the things that it speaks to is his holiness. That's pretty obvious. It speaks to, to the fact that God is completely holy. He is. He is um, perfect, He is good, He is just, and in Him is no darkness. There's not a trace of imperfection in Him. He's incompatible with darkness. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. Paul is talking to Timothy and he says this about God. He says, He dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is light. He, he is ultimate Holiness and perfection and goodness. The second thing that God is light tells us is that God doesn't change. In Revelation chapter 21, it talks about the New Jerusalem. The source of light for the New Jerusalem is God. In fact, it uses the phrase that the lamp, its lamp is the lamb. And the outcome of that being the fact that God is the light of the city is that there is no night there. The light's never going to go out. There's no night. God is always light. It's hard for us to grasp immutability in our world where everything changes. But what God is now is what He has always been and what He will always be. He does not change. James 1:17. This is a verse you're probably thinking of already. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. No change in His goodness no matter what happens. God is light also tells us that He is the revealer. He is the source of truth. He lights things up. Over in John 3, verse 21, talking to Nicodemus, Jesus tells him, the light's come into the world. And he says, whoever practices the truth comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that what he has done has been accomplished in God. Here's another good example of God's light. Was back in the Old Testament, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he forgot. Now when most of us have a mental block, we're kind of the only one that gets frustrated about it. Nebuchadnezzar was able to spread his frustration around, and he, it occurred to him that if his wise men were really so wise they and could predict the future, then why couldn't they tell him what had just happened? And so he put them on the spot and um, commanded them to figure out what his dream was, and as a bonus, they would get to keep their heads on their shoulders. So these wise men were eager to earn that bonus. And God revealed the dream to Daniel. And in Daniel's uh, prayer of thanksgiving, Daniel said this. This is Daniel 2, verse 22. He reveals deep and hidden things. Nothing can hide from God. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. The fact that God is light uh, reminds us also of the fact that he is what we need more than Anything else, this whole world needs God, just like the whole world needs the sun. In John 8, 12, again, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, the light of life. His life gives life. Now, we're still on truth, number one, that God is light it's a good time for us to stop and think a bit about ourselves. If we've been exposed to God's light, unless we're totally blind, not a whole lot needs to be said about ourselves. We don't, we don't need a lot of soul-searching and self-analysis to kind of gather where we stand with regard to God's light. Just by, but but the thing is if, if that that vision that understanding of God starts to get cloudy and we, or starts to break down or if we've never seen it we don't see ourselves very accurately at all. Um, I was thinking you know just comparing ourselves to others we may not we wouldn't see our need for God and, and uh, where we're at very clearly at all back when I was in Romania just by way of illustration, uh, I played a lot of chess. Too much chess, really, looking back. And um, I thought I was pretty good. And compared to my friends, I, you know, I thought I was pretty good. I could usually beat my friends. And uh, so I, I think I thought I was kind of an, an expert chess player among amateurs, you know. But one day I went to, to Timișoara, a town about an hour and a half from us. And I was, I went into the park, it was in the evening, and in the park in the evening, and I'd noticed this had happened before at the park on certain evenings. The park was full of people playing all sorts of games, but a lot of chess. Chess was apparently taken fairly seriously over there, I think. And so I decided I'm going to try this out. So I sat down across from an, from an old man, uh, approximately as old as the Apostle John. Not really. He was but kind of a scruffy old guy and I, I said I'm gonna play this guy a game of chess. So I pulled out my chessboard and, and we got started. And I tell you what, don't play scruffy old men chess, you can avoid it. He smoked me and very quickly. And I had been you know, been playing very carefully, thinking through my moves and you know, he you know, thought for half a second before his moves. And next thing Next thing you know, I was knocking my king over, and you know, I resigned. We played another game, and you won pretty easily that time, too. And so I was enlightened. I was exposed to the fact that I maybe wasn't so much of an expert among amateurs, but more like an amateur among amateurs among my friends. And in the same way, when we're exposed to God's light, we see that. We're not that great after all. We're, we're just we're sinners among sinners. And Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. If you don't see your need for God, I think the root problem is you haven't been exposed. Or or you've, let, you've you've let your vision of God grow cloudy. God is light, and we need that light. Truth number two is that we can't walk in darkness with God. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth walking here, he's talking about a pattern of life. He's not talking about just one decision or two decisions or even three. He's talking about a pattern of living, a, a pattern of choices. So, walking in darkness is a pattern of sin, living in sin, sinful living, living in disobedience to God. Now, the Gnostics would teach this, and I was, I'm was i no expert when it comes to Gnostics, but From what I gather, they would have taught that this is kind of an early form of of Gnosticism that since matter is completely evil, your body is already completely evil. There's not much you can do to change that. And so it doesn't really matter that much what you do with your body. It's completely evil. Makes sense, right? And so um, they would feel like what matters is that you have this, whatever mental enlightenment they believed in, that that you have that kind of knowledge in your head and it kind of made up for all the other trouble. And, and it didn't really matter how you live. And I believe they took advantage of that idea. John says, you think it doesn't matter how you walk? Well, think again. You, you think you're enlightened? You're out of your minds. There's no darkness in God. You can't be in God and in darkness at the same time. There there are two realities here that I think John is stating. One is that, the simple, the the most obvious one maybe, is that God does not mix with darkness. He does not mix with darkness. He's very willing to uh, dawn on our darkness. That's the song, Brightest and Best, right? He's willing to dawn on our darkness. Um, He is willing to draw us into the light. But He will not share in our darkness. Over in first John chapter three, John there's some phrases here, which would maybe remind you know John is called the son of thunder. And there's a few spots in his uh, in his letter where you can hear a little thunder. And over in first in John chapter three he says, Sin is lawlessness, verse four. And then verse eight everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. The son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. So this is the whole point of this coming. Destroy the works of the devil and redeem us. So if you're living in sin, you know, whose side did you say you were wrong? It doesn't make any sense. So God does not mix with darkness. But, but the other thing that I, I think John is saying here is that light has an effect on you so that you can't say that you have really, that you are abiding in a light, light while you're walking in darkness if you're abiding in the light, then truth and obedience are going to be a natural outcome of abiding in the light. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's, it's, it's automatic. Um, we can wrestle with that in later, later studies in, in 1 John. But abiding in Christ will change you. You can't walk in darkness with God. You want to walk in darkness, He will not walk with you or you also cannot walk in the light without God. You need God's light. Truth number three is that God's light brings cleansing. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John seems to think that even though we're Christians, we might still sin. Hmm. In fact, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He's including himself in this statement. Now, he doesn't want us to sin. That's what he says over in in chapter 2. One of the reasons he's writing this letter is that they do not sin. And he demands that it not be a pattern. We don't walk in darkness. But he realizes we're not perfect people. He doesn't live in an ivory tower we know that we're not we're not perfect we are going to fail and we know this is the truth we sin and we need help now where do you go to get out of darkness you go to the light that's what verse seven is saying we walk in the light we have fellowship and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us the light is where the cleansing comes from and then there's this verse if we confess our sins one of the probably about the I'd pick one one promise from the Bible, or it it would maybe be this one. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's only one of there's only a few times in the New Testament that this Greek word, which is translated confess, is actually used in connection with sins. Most times it's talking about acknowledging a truth about God or Jesus or some other spiritual truth acknowledging a reality uh, John himself uses it a handful of times I don't remember how often actually but mo- all the other times in his writings it's confessing some truth about Jesus acknowledging some truth about Jesus so in this case confessing our sins is acknowledging the truth about us and what we've done And and one of the other, one of the meanings of that Greek word is simply to agree with. We're agreeing. And what we're agreeing is with is what the light is showing us that we sinned. We're agreeing with the Spirit. Uh, We're not coming up with our own kind of watered down version of what happened and a whole bunch of excuses mixed in to make it not look so bad. We're confessing. We're we're agreeing that what the Spirit said is true. We sin. We we broke God's law. We we rejected what what He wanted from us. Committed sin, broke Your law. I did what is offensive. We say we didn't sin. Well, we're disagreeing with what the Spirit is saying. So, refusing to confess our sin is calling the Holy Spirit a liar. Now. If we confess our sin, will God really forgive you? Will He really forgive us? Will He keep forgiving us over and over? Or is He going to get tired of us someday and just throw us out? Have you ever wondered, have you ever had thoughts like this? I know I have. I mean, surely sometime He is going to get just aggravated and enough. I want to tell a little story on my dad here. It's, it's nothing negative, but one time, and I was 9 or 10 years old, uh, Dad decided we were going to go somewhere in the stick shift pickup. And I thought it was a great time to learn how to drive stick shift. And he, cons- he gave in, or agreed, or I don't remember exactly. And so he put me in the driver's seat, and he sat over in the passenger seat and gave me instructions how to do this thing. You know, You let out the clutch, you put in the gas. You know, to someone who knows how to drive stick shift, this doesn't seem that complicated. But if you've never driven stick shift before, it somehow, it's just a form of art that is like beyond me, or at least it was. And I could not master this. You know, letting out the clutch and putting it in it just, just didn't work. And every time, it resulted in, you know, I let the clutch out, the truck would jump two feet and stall, and then he'd do it again. And uh, it happened, you know, the first couple times it was funny, but after three or four or five times it, it wasn't kind of, you know, like a, re- a joke, you know, when it gets repeated, it wasn't funny. The second time is the first time and so on. And finally, uh, you know, the sixth time, the seventh time was really no different from the first time. That was also discouraging. And so at some point, the, uh, the dispensation of grace was kind of over with. And uh, Dad said, you know, maybe some other time. We'll try this some other time. I think we actually did need to go somewhere. And uh, we weren't going to get there in in two-foot jumps with a pickup. So, you know, it it kind of worn out his patience. I don't remember him being aggravated, but it it was kind of enough. But God is not like that. He is not going to look back on your failures, and say, you know, this is the seventh time. That's enough. You run out of chances. You Use up all your get-out-of-jail-free cards. Eventually, I did learn how to drive that stitch shift and wreck the truck, too. So. <laughs> Another story. So, if you ever wonder if God is going to forgive you, remember how we started. This... These truths. The first one was that God is light. Now when you're in darkness, that's a scary thought, but if you are in the light, it's a reassuring thing. Because part of that, the truth about God is that He is faithful and He is just. And this promise of forgiveness here, lo and behold, is anchored in this reality about God, that He is faithful and just. And remember also, God is immutable. He's not going to change. So the fact that you failed doesn't change God's faithfulness. doesn't change His justice. And His faithfulness and justice means that when we confess, He will forgive us. That's pretty amazing. Now, now, the confession needs to be real, and and John doesn't go into great detail about what the confession should look like, but it's it's not just a, a casual, um, no-big-deal kind of confession. And, of course, what the word confess there tells us, we already talked about that, tells us what that confession should look like. But it's also accompanied by, by a sorrow and a repentance and an intention to change our ways. But, yes, God will forgive you of your sins. He is faithful and just, He's not going to change. As long as, as we confess our sins, He will forgive us our sins. I think he, he doesn't do it grudgingly at all. I think He is eager to cleanse us. Let's review this first chapter. There, there are three three truths I think we need to take home that God is light he is pure goodness he's not going to change god is light that's the foundation and then we we can't walk in darkness with god that's a lie we can't walk in darkness with God but if we walk in the light then we're under we're under his cleansing and when we sin we confess and he absolutely will forgive us and walking in the light of god is it's, it's an amazing place to be, and uh, it's just amazing how God has provided us that, that ability for us to be in fellowship with Him and to abide in Him.